my home world and my school world were just completely different. Like none of these stories that I heard in my family were ever things we talked about in school. They weren't in our history textbooks. So in some ways they, maybe as a child, I had this implicit sense that they didn't, they weren't as valid or they didn't matter or they weren't as important as the things that were actually written in print and English in my government textbook. I think now that I've had a chance to start to write and now that we have more of a movement and an understanding that we need more diverse books and diverse perspectives, I feel like I've come a long way in my own personal journey and realizing, okay, you know, the stories out of our community are actually really important and, and should be cherished and understood and digested. You're listening to Rock the Boat, a show about Asian Americans who challenge the status quo. Our past guests have included Andrew Yang, Michelle Fawn, Patrick Lee, and more. Our mission is to champion diversity in radio and elevate the voices of Asian Americans through storytelling. I'm your host, Lucia Liu. Hi, listeners. Welcome to another episode of Rock the Boat. I have a question for you guys. Have you ever heard of Love Boat? No, it's not the secret dating arm for Rock the Boat. And no, it's not the 1970s comedy drama that takes place on a cruise ship. In fact, Love Boat isn't really named Love Boat at all. The program's official name is the Overseas Compatriot Youth Taiwan Study Tour. It's a three-week summer program for college-aged overseas Chinese and overseas Taiwanese to acquaint or reacquaint with Chinese culture and language by spending time in Taiwan. Essentially, it's a Chinese summer language and culture camp for students transitioning from high school to college. The program was initially created to help strengthen political power for a wing of the Taiwanese government called the Chinese Nationalist Party, or commonly known as Kuomintang, or KMT. However, over the years, its purpose has served a completely different result. The summer tour inadvertently has become a debaucherous space for reacquainting overseas Chinese with hooking up and finding romance with each other, thus dubbing the program with its affectionate nickname, Love Boat. Many participants of Love Boat came back with a greater appreciation of Chinese language and culture, but also a greater willingness to date within the Asian community. Some of the famous alumni from the program include Congresswoman Judy Chu and pop singer Wang Li Hong. I didn't get a chance to experience Love Boat, but Lynn, my former co-host, did. She tells me that the program doesn't actually take place on a boat, but more so on a series of tour buses and convention centers. She did mention that there was a lot of dating and hooking up on the trip, but my lips are sealed on her escapades. The stories from Love Vote were so compelling that a documentary was made about the program in 2019. And this year, in 2020, a young adult novel about that experience was released called Love Boat Taipei. Many people call it the young adult version of Crazy Rich Asians. And the book was recently optioned for a film by the same production company behind To All the Boys I Loved Before. I sat down with the author of the novel, Abigail Heng Wen, for a very candid conversation about her background and about the book. What surprised me most about Abigail was that she didn't intend to become a writer. She's still a full-time practicing lawyer at a venture capital firm and also a artificial intelligence aficionado. She followed a fairly traditional career path. She studied government at Harvard, obtained a law degree from Columbia Law School, clerked for some judges, and later worked at a prominent law firm on Wall Street. 
She even harbored aspirations to become a judge. So how did Abigail go from being a high-powered lawyer to also becoming a young adult novelist? I dive in with Abigail to find out. Abigail, I'm so excited to have you on Rock the Boat. Do you mind introducing yourself? Sure. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. It's really great to be a part of your podcast. I'm Abigail Hingwen, and I'm the author of Love Boat Taipei, which is a novel that came out with HarperCollins on January 7th, so about three months ago. And it's been a really whirlwind experience since then. Yeah, absolutely. And quick question. In your bio, your guilty pleasure is to dance to music while no one's watching. (laughs) Yep, that's right. What's your go-to dance song? So while I was writing Love Boat Taipei, um, it was from The Greatest Showman, Rewrite the Stars. It's one of the favorite songs of my main character. Yes, I love that song too. I would listen to it on repeat when I'm running on the treadmill at the gym. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So we had a conversation last week and I got a sense of your background. Uh, You grew up very multicultural since your parents immigrated from Shandong and Fujian to the Philippines and then Indonesia and then to the States. So you talk a bit about growing up in a multicultural family. How has that kind of impacted you? And how did you grapple with your identity growing up? I've loved it. I've loved always growing up knowing that there were so many different sides to every story. I would travel a lot as a child between Ohio and the Philippines, where my mom's family was based. And, you know, I would listen in as my aunts and uncles would talk about different conspiracy theories about the United States and, you know, just some of the histories of the Opium War between China and the British. And, you know, my, my dad would tell stories about seeing this placard in Shanghai saying no dogs and Chinese allowed and how he would cry. And so I think I've always had that other perspective, like to complement the things that I was learning in the United States, like, you know, going through a very patriotic public school system and learning about the Revolutionary War and our founding fathers and all these things that I love as an American. I think the other piece is that Within my own family, we are multicultural, with my mom being from a Catholic country, but an immigrant. She's, as you said, she's Chinese, Filipino, now Chinese American. And my dad being in a Muslim country as Chinese, uh, Indonesian, and then eventually moving to Michigan. So even between the two of them, they did not have a common language except for English. And so that's what we spoke in our family. But each of them had their other dialects and languages that they could speak with their families and, you know, a lot of different perspectives between themselves as well. So I think I've always appreciated just growing up as someone who who's very much like immersed in a sense of the larger world. So going back to the conspiracy theories, I'm kind of curious, like what kind of conspiracy theories your family talked about? I think as a child, I didn't fully understand like the whole context behind what they were talking about. But I think I would hear some of my uncles kind of go off on most major decisions being a way to undermine China or undermine Asia. And I don't think I I ever felt like I knew enough to really critique whether those were true or not. I did hear a lot about the war and Japanese colonization of the Philippines. So Mm -hmm. many stories about prisoners of war and advances in medicine and just different things that, again, they were all from my childhood. We didn't have Wikipedia, so I could go and validate were these things true or not. But definitely, there were a lot of stories like that. Yeah. And and I guess as you were listening to these stories and juxtaposing them with what you're learning in school, how did that make you feel or did that cause any sort of tension? That is a really great question. I think especially now that I have a book out in the world about a Chinese American girl who goes back to Asia, because I think 
what it was is that my home world and my school world were just completely different. Like none of these stories that I heard in my family were ever things we talked about in school. They weren't in our history textbooks. So in some ways they maybe as a child I had this implicit sense that they didn't they weren't as valid or they didn't matter or they weren't as important as the things that were actually written in print and English in, you know, my government textbook. I think now that I've had a chance to start to write and now that we have more of a movement and an understanding that we need more diverse books and diverse perspectives, I feel like I've come a long way in my own personal journey and realizing, okay, you know, the stories out of our community are actually really important and, and should be cherished and, and, and understood and digested. Do you have any like super memorable ones? In the Philippines, like one of the conspiracy theories I've heard there is that during Spanish colonization, they deliberately structured the the communities to create tension among between the Chinese and the Filipinos. And actually, it makes sense. Like now that I've studied politics, I've studied how leaders retain power is when you mm-hmm. instigate fighting among your deputies, you're you're more in a protected position. And so, you know, in the Philippines, they talked about how they had these different classes that were actually built into the society, like with the Spaniard overlords at the top. And then I think the Chinese were in the middle and then the Filipinos below them. And so all that tension that was created locally ended up, according to the conspiracy theories, serving the purpose of the masters. And it's, it's very possible that, that these you know, political battles were going on. And I think we just see the same thing reflected in other countries that have also grappled with colonization. I think that is probably what led me to my interest to study government and international relations at Harvard. It's just that sense of all this geopolitical intrigue So before we dive into your career, there's one experience that I want to bring up that happened to you in high school. And you mentioned that it's a story you don't often tell because it's something you couldn't fully digest. Can you talk a bit about that? And was this before Love Boat or after Love Boat? Yeah, so this was before Love Boat. There was a story that I I ended up writing about for the school library journal I was interested in joining one of the school plays. My high school actually had an incredible entertainment program because the director was actually um, the head of entertainment at SeaWorld of Ohio, so he was fantastic. And, you know, we would put on these huge musical productions every year. And so as a middle school student going to these plays at the high school, I was like, I always wanted to be a part of that. And What kind of plays did, you, did, did they put on? They like, did everything. As, yeah, Guys and Dolls, yeah. Oklahoma, West Side Story. There were so many. I tried out for the fall play, didn't get in. I didn't expect to because freshmen very rarely make these plays. You know, but there's a part of me that was worried that as an Asian American, would they be able to authentically cast me in a play like Oklahoma when there weren't any Asian Americans? Um, or at least that was my perception. And so in December, we did these things called one acts where they were student led and those were considered opportunities for freshmen to actually get their foot in the door and, and get some experience. And so I was game. I was ready to do it. And I was mm-hmm. completely floored when I found out I had actually been cast as a sixth actress out of seven in a play called Four Little Words. And, you know, when I showed up to the production and I I got the script and I felt like, oh, I finally made it in. I'm part of this little club. It turned out the character I was playing was a non-English speaking character. Like the, she actually spoke these made up words. They weren't, they weren't even like a foreign language. And the Mm -hmm. whole point of the story was this director couldn't get these actresses to shut up. They were just prima donnas who went on and on. He only wanted them to say four little words. So when the when the audition opportunity finally comes to my character and she stands up, she can't even speak English. She's like, hallelujah, I never want to hear another word of English again. And that's like the end of the play. So this is like, you know, I was 14 years old and I had kind of just sworn that I would do anything it took to, you know, get on stage and be in this doing these plays. And I was in it and I and I suddenly was faced with this role that I couldn't 
love. And I was really struggling with it. I'm like, I can't play this role. And I would go and I wouldn't, I didn't tell my parents and I would just sit there and feel so ashamed every time I delivered these lines because my whole life I'd grown up with people saying made up things to me and, and asking if that was Chinese, right? And and it was it was excruciating, but I didn't know what to do. And I didn't know, like now as an adult, I look back on myself like, oh my God, like I don't actually know that anything could have been done because I remember mm-hmm. my mom going to my fourth grade teacher and saying that kids were were calling me chink on the playground. And my fourth grade teacher yeah. said, I cannot control what comes out of their mouths. Like she was not able to do anything. So I don't know that anything could have been done in that time and place, but I did end up playing the role. At one point, someone said to me when I had missed a, a rehearsal, she says, you know, Bob, who's not his real, it's not his real name, but he's the director. He, she's like, he played your role yesterday. He's hilarious. And when I wrote this piece, my critique partner said he was hilarious because he it was probably a racist caricature. And I just... Mm-hmm. I did not know until that moment, like a year, a year ago when I wrote this piece, that that's probably exactly what had happened. But I just felt really judged and insecure, like, oh, I cannot be funny in this role. And maybe I don't have what it takes. You know, maybe I, maybe I didn't have what it took to, to break into this world. So I eventually did play the role. One of my good friends who was Asian American was in the audience. And afterwards, he came up and he gave me this huge congratulatory hug. He said, I'm so proud of you. And it was not until two years later when we were both at Harvard we talked about it and I told him like, yeah, I felt really uncomfortable playing that role. And I'm sorry, this is actually six years later because I went through high school and he, he said, you know, I was actually really upset when I saw you in that play, but I, neither of us said anything. So I think yeah. my, my big takeaway from that story, you know, many, many years later is that we have to talk about it. Like we have to recognize that these things are not okay and I think when I was in the midst of it as that 14-year-old insecure girl, I didn't know. Like, I thought there's something wrong with me and like, why I can't embrace this role. But, you know, at the same time, I'm so thankful that we've come so far from mm-hmm. that time. Like, we still yeah. have a ways to go, but just the whole We Need Diverse Books movement and this recognition even in Hollywood that we need authentic casting, and you know, like all this is moving in the right direction. And I'm really thankful and thankful to be a part of it. Yeah. Thanks for leading the charge in it. I think it's definitely needed right now, especially in this coronavirus environment when our president is calling it a Chinese virus and there's a lot of racism that Asians are facing. So I want to take some time to go over your chosen career path. Growing up, did you think that you would end up in law or government? I think I did, actually. I was a judge in fifth grade for future problem solving. And I think that's when I first got the bug, like, oh, I could be a judge. And I went to Harvard thinking I was going to be a judge. There was a moment when I was working in Washington, D.C. for the Senate Judiciary Committee. And I felt like the Hill is full of young people, Capitol Hill, full of young people with so much responsibility and very little life experience. And Mm. there's a lot of political jockeying, but it it felt very empty to me. Like I felt like the real substantive work was being done off the hill in universities and think tanks. And then on the hill, you had all these people who were just um, jockeying for empty power. And I was like, this is not for me. And I remember the day that I called my dad and I said, you know, I can't do this. I cannot pursue this career in politics like everybody back home wants me to do. And and that was my moment where I broke from those expectations of my family. And it was a really hard and difficult decision for me. And my character and my book has a similar journey as well. So when you said that your family expected you to be in politics, that's actually pretty rare. 
I'm curious if that was something that your family wanted you to do. Right. I, I do think my family is quite unusual. When I was growing up, they would go in to speak with high school administrators, not about me or my brother and sister, but actually about other immigrant kids in our community who, who were struggling with the language barriers, whose parents didn't mm. understand, you know, the school system, and they would help them. And that was very mm. much like who they were. They're very generous with their time. They're quite activists. And they were really involved in different activist communities in Ohio. So I think for them and their own immigrant experiences, you know, we've been immigrants for two generations out of China. In the Philippines, like my mom grew up in a very wealthy Chinese family, but she also saw that as a minority in the country, they had very little political power and how that really held them back or made it difficult for their voice to be heard. And so, you know, when she immigrated to the United States, it was the same thing. And I think for me, probably because I, would, I was doing things like debate and I was in, in the dance squad and show choir and I was kind of a public figure even within my community growing up, mm -hmm. I think they saw that as an opportunity to just really be a voice and have a voice. And it wasn't just from them. It was from all their, their friends and who were just really struggling with not having a voice in the United States and just feeling marginalized and unseen and ignored. And I guess like, what was that moment like when you were like, this is so empty and there's all these people with very few life experiences jockeying for power. I don't belong here. I'm interested in doing other things. How did that scenario feel for you? And how were you able to reconcile that with your parents' expectations and your family's expectations? It makes me like go back to that moment in time when I just didn't know what I was going to do with my life. It was scary because I, I think, you know, one, I felt like I was letting everybody down. And at the same time, I knew it wasn't sustainable. I just didn't have it in me to, to continue on in that world. But I didn't know what I wanted to do. And so I think that that was what made it difficult to kind of move forward, like just into uncertainty and not knowing like, okay, I have these this education and I have these skills and I've got relationships, but I don't know like what all that is leading to or, or whether it should be leading to anything. So I think that was hard. And, you know, I kind of went to law school partly by default because that, that moment actually came before I went to law school and I, I had already gotten in. I was deciding whether I should go or not. But I did end up going. I loved law school. I got to study like really cool things about, you know, our, how our country's legal system works, but also like mm -hmm. I studied Islamic law and Chinese law. And, you know, it was more, I think, just part of that multicultural experience that I'd always grown up with. Mm -hmm. And I had opportunities to, you know, work for the U.S. government as a clerk. And so just really getting so deeply enmeshed in our system and, and getting to work with incredible people who were substantive and not just political, all that was really important. But, you know, again, like I still could tell that this wasn't for me. It wasn't really what was going to sustain me for the long haul. And it was, I would say, like, Two, two years into um, practicing law at a big law firm. I was at Sullivan and Cromwell, which is uh, one of the big Wall Street firms. Mm -hmm. I was pregnant with my second child and I was thinking about being a law professor. And I, again, could not bring myself to write that article that I needed to write to apply for academic positions. I, but I had a novel in my head. It was a middle grade fantasy and it was kind of my little secret. But my husband was like, you know, you're excited about it. Why don't you just try it? And so I did. Yeah. And that's when the light bulb kind of switched on for me. I'm like, I could just pump out this entire novel. I had so many stories in me. I had so many um, scenes and characters and worlds. And and it just really felt like home to me. Yeah. So this aha moment, right? Like 
to you when you explained it, it felt like it came out of nowhere. But at the same time, I'm I'm thinking about like your past and how your parents shared a lot of stories. There's conspiracy theories. There's ah, a lot yes. of you know storytelling in in your upbringing. And you mentioned that you also had a creative side. That you were in show choir. That you were really into Broadway. Like, did you write stories or create stories when you were young? I did, and I appreciate that you have more insight into my background than I do. I didn't make all those connections myself. I have journaled since I was nine, and I would take opportunities to tell stories anytime. I used to tell stories to my brother and sister when they were little. And you know, my my brother and I actually did an interview at Adobe, and he he talked about that how he would be kind of captivated by these stories. And even throughout college and law school, anytime there was an open-ended assignment where we could do whatever we wanted, I would write a story. So, yeah, so it was always there. I just didn't know that it was something I could take seriously or embrace it. I didn't know how you would build a career out of it, which is, you know, it's still quite difficult to make a career as a writer. Sure. Um, And when did you decide that, yeah, you know, in order to further my writing experiences, I want to get an MFA? Like, what compelled you to do that? And how are you able to do that amidst all the things that you were doing? You were raising two kids, you had a law job, and... You have a husband, which I think is a full-time job. (laughs) (laughs) So how did you balance it all? I felt like I'd hit a ceiling in terms of my growth as a writer. I'd sent that second novel into the world. I got an agent with it, came close at a major publishing house and couldn't get through, couldn't get through marketing. And that happened with two more manuscripts. And I felt like, you know, I was working with really great agents. I was going to conferences, getting critiques. I had a great critique group. And I just felt like I didn't know how to get any better. And so I had friends who had gone to the Vermont College of Fine Arts and had raved about the program. So I just, it was actually very sudden. I decided to apply after the deadline. I spoke with their admissions office and I got in and I went and it was the most amazing creative journey of my life. They really took apart my writing. I I remember telling my first advisor, I don't want to learn how to polish my writing and make it look pretty because I've done that my whole life. I want to be an artist. I want to go deeper and find the heart of my work. And that's what she did for me. She took took me all the way down. She said the most important questions to ask are, what would it take to break your character? And would you take a bullet for this character? Like you have to love your character that much. Wow. Yeah. So those are the things that I didn't learn in law school and <laughs> studying government and international relations. It was really the human side of things. And in a very strange way, I had always thought like I would quit my job, you know, once my book career started taking off. And the reason why I didn't, and I haven't yet, is because all those years of studying the craft of writing and the characters and exchanging my work ended up being a study of human nature. And what motivates people and what builds relationships and connections. And Mm-hmm. All that ended up being really useful in my job, like as someone moving into leadership. And I just didn't expect that. And even the storytelling skills, like incredibly important when you're presenting the, the ideas out of your team, you know, whether it's presenting to other executives or presenting it to the world at, at conferences. Absolutely. And so like, like as my writing grew and my writing career grew, like so did my other career. And mm-hmm. again, that's not something I could have anticipated. You make it sound so easy. <laughs> on top of being a full-time lawyer, how did how are you able to like like when were you writing and then how are you taking care of your kids? Was your husband supportive of you? Was yes. your family supportive? Yes. <laughs> yes, very they've all been incredible. I would say that the way it happened is I time shifted a lot and I made some big decisions along the way. So the first decision point was not becoming a law professor. And then after that, you know, I, I was pregnant with my second child. I gave birth. I took three years off 
we had moved to California for my husband's work in tech, and I stayed under the radar screen for those three years, raising my newborn, second child, being with my older child, and then writing. And, you know, after those three years, I felt like I needed to go back to law because I hadn't completed my training. And I, you know, I knew that writing is very difficult to sustain financially, but I could, you know, make a decent living as a lawyer. So I did go back to a firm. And then my second decision point came was when I decided to leave the law firm and go in-house. And, you know, it was a it was a very hard decision at the time, although in retrospect, it was completely the right decision. But, you know, there's a lot of snobbery around big law firms and the opportunity to sure. work at this level. And, you know, they're like, oh, you, you may never be able to come back if you leave. But I had had a chance to sample like what it was like to be in-house. I enjoyed being closer to the business side of things and having fewer clients, um, a more long-term relationship. And then I ended up going into venture capital, which I loved because I loved seeing the new companies and the new technologies coming through. So mm-hmm. that's really the, the biggest next step for me. And it was those next eight years where I did both the writing and working in-house were really difficult because I always felt like I wasn't excelling at either and then not, not excelling at being a mom either. And I did come to a really difficult point about two years ago where I had gone out for two promotions at work and I came in mm-hmm. number two both times mm-hmm. and I had lost my agent for my novel for my books. And I remember just like being on my couch in the living room that I'm sitting in right now and crying Mm -hmm. and just Mm -hmm. feeling like I, maybe I made all the wrong decisions and I'd given up so many things in pursuit of this crazy dream that I wanted to to do. But then it was so weird. Like everything just kind of changed after that at work, this senior woman in my department, she called me. She's like, I've been exactly in the same place as you before. She's like, I was, you know, head and shoulders above my competitor and I lost and you know here's what you need to do to keep moving forward and then mm-hmm. she gave me an opportunity to speak on artificial intelligence at a women's conference and she was so mm-hmm. smart to do that because one of the things I'd struggled with at work was was people taking my my projects from me like I would build something it'd be great yeah someone would take it from me and I didn't know how to fight that when I was early in my career I didn't know that I was supposed mm-hmm. to because I didn't want to rock the boat <laughs> but when she gave me an opportunity to speak at a women's conference there was no one who could take it from me because I work with 30 guys so I had someone actually said okay fine you can go and do this talk and I went and I totally kicked butt and based on that talk like I went on to give subsequent talks so I ended up speaking on AI around the world at you know Beijing yeah. Berlin Brussels I was supposed to speak in Dubai and then it got canceled by coronavirus and so and all that ended up growing me as a public speaker. I spoke on national TV during my book tour. And, mm-hmm. you know, just I was suddenly like developing all these skills in a way that I didn't, I just did not expect. Can we go back a little bit to that moment when it was <laughs> like, what changed? Do you know, like, if there was anything like internally or externally that changed? Or was it kind of that you were? doing incredible work, things just weren't going your way. And then somebody gave you a chance or somebody realized all the work that you were doing and gave you a chance. That's a great, great question. Cause I don't know if I even know the answer entirely, but I think it was putting myself out there. So even though I lost those two promotions, there were like 35 people applying for each of these jobs. And so I applied and I interviewed with everybody and I got on everyone's radar screen and people were impressed with my work. My problem for both of them was that I wasn't as well known by Mm -hmm. um, the decision makers. Mm -hmm. And so I learned so much from going through that process of applying and putting myself out there and getting rejected. 
And so, you know, not only from this woman who had a chance to see me in action, but there was another, my manager today, he also had a chance to get to know me and see my work and my resume and like what I was capable of doing. So he's actually the one who sent me speaking on AI around the world, springboarding off of, you know, the other options. So I think it really was um, taking those risks and fighting. And, you know, and that's mm-hmm. what my managers and my mentors have told me. That was the biggest takeaway I got. I had had mentors telling me that you need to obey the hierarchy. You need to just be a good worker, honestly. Like I, I would get that advice. And that seemed very much consistent with with my cultural upbringing. But my new manager, the one I'm with, he, he was like, you know, you're going to step on some toes. That's okay. Like you're going to, you know, you've been very successful. That's going to attract some resistance. You just got to push through it and we got to find ways right. around it. And so that permission to rock the boat was revolutionary for me. And then even in writing Love Boat Taipei and realizing, okay, these kids are all rebels. They're all yeah. fighting the system. Like so many people, when I interviewed them, they were actually embarrassed about this. Like they didn't want to be associated with this debaucherous, you know, experience. <laughs> but actually those were important skills that we learned. Like it's okay to resist the system. Like good things happen when you do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so from one boat to the next, right? So yeah. from rocking the boat to love boat. I mean, I think just what you said earlier about getting the permission to rock the boat. I think that even the concept that we have to get permission in order to rock the boat feels like there's some work that we as a community need to do here, which is that, hey, we need to allow ourselves and not look for external permission to rock the boat, but we ourselves like internally need to start rocking the boat, which I think you with with Love Boat Taipei, you're doing, you're rocking the boat on Asian representation. You were able to showcase the fun side of being Asian. So I want to transition this quickly and talk a bit about your book and your characters. The story is about Ever, who is a 18-year-old. She goes to the Overseas Compatriot Youth Taiwan Study Tour, uh, which is now endearingly called Love Boat. So when you were conceiving this story, like, how did you come up with the main characters? And was there a certain message that you wanted to send with each of those characters? So I, for a long time, did not know who was the, going to be the main character of the story. I knew that there was this great experience, like a really unique Asian-American experience that I wanted to capture, but I didn't know who was going to narrate that. I didn't want to have an agenda. I had done that with some of my earlier manuscripts, and I felt like that was uh, undermined the authenticity of, of the storytelling. The most important part of storytelling, I think, is to connect with readers and to share and just share truths. So I didn't have a particular message in mind, but I knew I wanted to showcase the diversity of the community and, you know, thinking about like, what are some of the existing stereotypes about Asian Americans based on what the limited portrayal in media and entertainment, and then, you know, basically choosing characters that I knew were countercultural. So Rick is a football player at Yale. My husband also played football in high school and he played sprint football at Princeton. And mm-hmm. all his friends were recruited athletes and they're Asian American. And so I kind of have grown up in that world. Like, of course, there are Asian American athletes. And yet you don't really see that represented very much. Mm-hmm. Similar with Ever being a dancer and uh, Xavier being an artist and Sophie, you know, she's boy crazy, right? And so I think that's so that's so real. Like, actually, of all my characters, I feel like people are like, all my girlfriends are like, yes, I'm Sophie, <laughs> right? Or they understand <laughs> Sophie who is driven to get married, but she's so talented and needs to realize that she's got so much more to her than than what she's what she's striving for on Love Boat. But they they kind of came to me over time as I was trying to figure out, sift through like all the other 
various people who could go on this journey because thousands of people have gone on this program. Spencer is interested in politics and that's kind of based on a friend of mine and myself, you know, like we were the rare Asian Americans in the government department at the time we were at Harvard. And, you know, Mark, he's a journalist and he's also kind of a leader of the Gang of Five in trying to bring out messages around you know, Asian American male stereotypes. And so these are, for me, I think they're all people like you kind I know they're not based on real people, but they're people that I know exist in the community. I think it's fascinating because you are humanizing Asian culture and you're humanizing the different types of Asian Americans that exist in current culture versus what media used to portray Asian Americans as, right? So Mm -hmm. I think there's a couple of stereotypes that Asian American actors always fall into. And what's, I think, unique about Love Boat is that you are now taking characters from real life, real life Asian Americans who are just as multifaceted and have just as many interests and curiosities and passions as everybody else in America and showcasing all of that. I think what's really cool is that you're reclaiming the voice of Asian Americans and telling the stories of all these different Asian Americans who fit in with a lot of the different types of, I think, social classes in like high school or like in the college environment. Right. Do you intend to continue in the YA genre or is this kind of like, this is your YA series, you'll have like, you know, an adult series and maybe a nonfiction series, et cetera, et cetera. (laughs) Yeah. So I love this question because I think it's like in some ways young adult literature is a misnomer. Young adult literature didn't really exist when I was growing up. I I think back then a wrinkle in time would have been considered young adult, but today it'd be considered middle grade. Um, But this category has really exploded in the past, you know, I don't know, maybe 10 years. And and people keep asking me this question, like, I enjoyed your book, but I'm 50. You know, <laughs> I'm like, why do I like it? And young adults read from 13 to like 90. And I, you know, why is it that it's attracted so much interest like in such a large readership? I think it's partly because everyone can relate to those first moments, you know, your first experience forever, like her first experience abroad on her own, her first boyfriend, her first kiss, right? Like there's so many firsts that that are nostalgic, I think, for the older readership. And then at the same time, I, I find that the young adult space has drawn a lot of activists. And so people who are interested in politics and mental health issues and changing culture, for some reason that happens more in the young adult space, maybe because it's more of like a, an idealistic community, um, a visionary one. So I think that's actually kind of the work that I've done on my tour. And I know other young adult writers are doing this is trying to explain that actually young adult is really for everybody. And I think it does lend itself well, especially to this particular story, because there's so many new experiences to be had on Love Boat. So recently, Love Boat has been optioned for a film, same team who made To All the Boys I Loved Before, right? How, how did they let you know about that optioning? And like, what was going through your head as you found out? So that was incredibly exciting. I think that's, you know, really the one thing I wanted, like I, I, I want to see these 30 diverse characters on the screen and I would love them to be discovered into other non-ethnic specific roles because that's that's who the community is. Like they play every role in society and they can play every role in society. You know, when I went out to agents with the novel back in October of, I think it was October, 2018, I had a lot of interest from agents. Like it got read overnight. I had a number of phone calls and then I ended up meeting agents in person and there was an agent who had offered to fly me down to a set in Los Angeles to meet with me. Wow. So mm-hmm. I knew then that there was already a lot of interest, but I also knew that 
it's so difficult to make a movie in Hollywood and like mm-hmm. how hard it is to get greenlit. So when the offer did come in, I had, I had a number of producers reaching out and actors and, and other talent, which has been really no exciting. No big deal, Abigail. No yeah. big deal. <laughs> it was a big deal. <laughs> but I was thrilled, I think, because I loved what they did with, with Jenny Han's books. Like, and I know, yeah. you know, I think from talking with them, like, they were just very respectful of the culture and wanting to get that right. And that was really important to me. They're really good, especially with millennial content. So all that I think has been really exciting. And I think there's still a long ways to go. Like, I think it's, this is, you know, everything's moving in the right direction, but for sure, like we do need the continued support of the community and getting word out and supporting like the next steps along the journey, because mm-hmm. to get a movie all the way to the green light, uh, there's so many ways to kill it still. My my film manager told me you can't celebrate until we're in the car driving to the premiere. And so I think, <laughs> so true. in some ways that knowledge keeps me from fully celebrating because it's, you know, there's still a long road ahead, but but it definitely is a huge huge step in the right direction. And I'm so thrilled to have such great partners. Yeah, absolutely. Something that I talk with, especially the people who work in entertainment, they say that in order to make a really authentic movie in the voice of a minority group, it's really important to have people at all echelons of the production cycle. So you need writers who are Asian, you need producers who are Asian, you need people behind the camera who are Asian, agents who are Asian who kind of understand the culture. So there's definitely a call out for more talent from the Asian American community and the creative fields. You know, you asked me what changed when after I was crying on my couch. I think what changed is I had people in positions of power who pulled me up. I actually don't think I could have pulled myself up by myself. And that really drove home for me, like how important it is to be in the room and to have a seat at the table and to have decision-making authority. Which I I feel like comes full circle. It's similar to your parents, like your mom who lived in the Philippines, who felt like, you know, the Chinese people didn't have political power or like a voice. Mm -hmm. And it it really, I think, comes full circle to to say that, you know, now like we're calling for more Asian Americans to have a seat at the table so that we can also have a voice here in the United States and in all sorts of different types of professions. Yes, absolutely. Going back to like your parents. So how did they feel when you first launched the novel? Did they know about your experiences on Love Boat? So I, I did tell them about the book. I, I wrote a piece called Confessions of an Undercover Novelist that was published in Lit Hub a couple months before the book came out. And I talk yeah. about what it was like to share my writing with my parents at long last, because for many years, I kind of wrote in secret, kept it from them. It was, you know, I didn't want them to think I was wasting my time and spending money needlessly. Yeah. But when I got the book contract, I'm like, okay, I have to come clean because they're going to find out about this book. And their friends will read it. And so, you know, I think I underestimated them. I actually, when I gave the book to my dad, I redacted the intimate scenes because <laughs> he used to change the channel on us when we were growing up every time a kissing scene came on. So like, you know, yeah. it's like, take that dad. But, you know, I, I gave him the novel. He read the whole thing. I gave him a practical reason to read it. Can you check the pinning for me? And, you know, we've never actually talked about the themes like in a really like deep heart to heart way, but they've just been so supportive. Like they told all their friends. I think my dad's like on a bunch of WeChat groups. He was like blasting out every day <laughs> more about, more and more about the book. And and my brother and I, you know, when we were talking at Adobe, he turned to me at one point. He's like, okay, let's get real. It was really hard with mom and dad for many years. And this book has really brought you guys together. And, you know, only my brother would have seen that and picked up on that. And he was absolutely mm-hmm. right. Like we did have a very difficult relationship and that you know, partly 
is reflected in my character and her journey with her parents. But this book has really built a lot of trust between us. And now, you know, I'm excited to tell them about developments with the book. And we, we text a lot more. We, we talk more on the phone. They, they live in the Bay Area. And, you know, we start to see them more even. And, and all that has really been a blessing that I wasn't expecting. I wasn't expecting, too, that this book would bridge cultures and generations, like, you know, not, not just in my own family, but outside and in the readership. And, and that all has been really amazing for me to see that. I think like at the end of the day, like, you know, parents are always proud. It's great to hear your story of how this book has kind of brought you and your family closer together after not going into politics. And I think what's funny is that to your point about young adult writers as activists, in a certain way, you're affecting people's perceptions, you're affecting change, you're changing the way people think through fiction and through your writing and through your characters. And that's a lot of times when people say media can be more impactful than politics. Right, right. Yeah, it's, it's like one of those things I, who knew that this is how I would end up doing kind of the same things that I, I was passionate about before. Um, but yeah. yeah, I do believe that fiction changes culture. I believe that we can imagine a better world through our storytelling. I, I actually think one of the reasons Barack Obama was elected was because Morgan Friedman had played presidential characters in so many movies before the elections. And it really just helped people to imagine like, oh, this is what an African-American president would look like. And it's awesome. Yeah. What advice would you give to those who are kind of stuck in, in your previous situation where they have built a career for themselves or maybe stuck in a nine to five, but have some sort of creative passion? They realize that this nine to five isn't necessarily what is going to sustain them for the long run and they have a creative passion what's like really practical advice that you can give on being able to explore those creative passions and putting yourself out there maybe two things one is to get training um, the training really matters and I think my MFA program was incredibly useful but there's you know other ways to get training from mentors and critique partners and then and then yes put yourself out there like that's what I learned paid off, right? Both in my job and with the writing. Like I've been rejected so many times by so many agents um, and editors. And the funny thing is like I've had work rejected by one agent and then adored by another. And that also made me realize like you really, when they, when the agents reject you and say it's subjective, it's so true. So I think just to have confidence in your work, be authentic because if you're imitating everyone else, then you might get some traction, but you're not really making the contribution that only you can make. So I think really paying attention to like, what is the unique voice that you bring um, based on all your particular experiences and your background, your family and your culture, and, mm -hmm. and really don't give that up because that's, that's your secret weapon. What's next for you, Abigail? Yeah, I have so many ideas. I think coronavirus is kind of throwing a wrench into everybody's future plans, but I think in my ideal world, you know, I have my sequel that I'm, I'm finalizing, you know, working on the Love Boat book to film adaptation. And I, you know, a wonderful person offered to mentor me as a producer. And so I think I may take her up on that at some point. I have some books that I would love to, you know, see if I can do it. I've been, I'm speaking more and more with studios and producers and um, other talent. So I would love to pursue that. I think I just, I'm so swamped right now with the, the work that I have. Yeah. And then I also love the artificial intelligence still grappling with how I'm going to bring that together. But I've, 
I'm really interested in AI and storytelling and ways that AI could poss- possibly um, be a part of the filmmaking process and make it you know, better. So I think that's a longer term project for me, something more like two to five years down the road. Yeah. Um, and I have ideas for how that could come together. But I, I think the key for me in terms of that balance question that you're asking is integration and trying to figure out how I can just bring the threads much closer so that I can focus. And we always ask our guests our signature question, which is, how do you, Abigail, intend to rock the boat? Yeah, I love this question. I, I feel like I'm in the midst of it now, but I think continuing to challenge notions of what's possible, you know, whether that's what role we play given our gender, our ethnic background. I would love to see more Asian American leaders, more women leaders, but also like I'm excited about boundaries that we can break in in filmmaking and in artificial intelligence. And, you know, just I feel like our future is boundless and I'm excited just to kind of push and, and have others push on all fronts and see where we end up. Dream big. Yeah, and maybe more Asian writers. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Abigail. Really appreciated your time. Thank you. Thank you. It was a really fun conversation. That was Abigail Hingwen, the novelist, the AI aficionado, the political junkie, the activist, soon-to-be producer, and mother of two. There's so much to unpack from my conversation with Abigail. I want to highlight just a couple of them that really stood out to me. So I think the first one is that stories are multifaceted and they contain varying perspectives. It's just as important to take those perspectives into account as what is written in history. For example, the narratives that were taught in American history are different from the actual narratives that happened globally. Just like the narratives that are portrayed in American media is different from the real narratives of Asians living in America. It's uplifting and it's inspiring to see our community coming out with content that represent our community in our own voices and in our own experiences. Abigail also shows us that it is possible to have a creative career and a conventional career if your circumstances allow for it. She emphasizes the importance of training and honing your skills, but it's also just as important to have the support of your family and those at work. She also mentions that it's important to put yourself out there. That's really when Abigail hit her big break. But it's also important to have a seat at the table and decision-making power. That's exactly what her parents wanted her to do. And they were right in wanting her to go into government and politics so she could advocate for her community. Abigail is now advocating for the community in another way through media and through storytelling. For me, Personally, the biggest takeaway I got from Abigail's story is the importance of getting sponsors in your life. There's a difference between a mentor and a sponsor. Mentors can help give advice for specific situations, and sometimes their advice is actually detrimental to your development. So Abigail gives an example of mentors who told her to stay quiet and don't rock the boat. Sponsors are different. Sponsors are people who propel you forward. They give you access to their networks, advocate for you, and give you opportunities. It was under her boss's sponsorship that Abigail was able to give herself permission to rock the boat. 
It's also because of her boss's encouragement to stay in VC that she was able to pursue her passion as a writer and still move forward in her career as a lawyer speaking about artificial intelligence. So I want to ask you to think about who has sponsored you in your life and who can you get to continue to sponsor you throughout your life in order to propel yourself forward. And if you're listening to this episode and you're a leader of an organization or you're a manager at your firm, think about who you can sponsor in your organization. Who can you help to give them the big break? That's going to help create more Asian Americans in leadership positions, and it's also going to help spur them to pursue their creative passions. Think about it and pay it forward. Thanks for listening to Rack the Boat. You can find a link to Abigail's book, Love Boat Taipei, in our show notes. If you've already read the book, please leave a review for her. Something she's encountered recently is that she noticed very few Asian Americans leave reviews for her book. Let's all be sure to show up for our community. It's really the little things that count. You can find a link to Abigail's article about her experience at that high school play in our show notes, along with her social media handles. I've also added a link about the difference between sponsorship and mentorship. Definitely go check it out. This is a reminder that Rock the Boat is a listener-funded podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider donating to the podcast. There's a link to our donation page in the show notes as well. Or leave a review for us on iTunes and really help us spread the word. Subscribe to our newsletter on our website to get episode updates and invitations to our community events. This episode was written and edited by me, Lucia Liu. Thank you to the Rock the Boat team for all your help in making this show possible. See you all next time.